Well, grace and peace, Woodside family, and a special welcome to all of my friends who are watching this special edition of The Link. And this really is a special edition. Today, we want to have a critical conversation about race and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is an important conversation that we were reminded of this week as we all saw the news of the tragic death of Ahmad Aubrey and the national conversation that it sparked. I immediately reflected on scripture, thought about our church family and the friends that I know that are in Christ, struggling with how do we have a productive, edifying, fruitful conversation that rises above the gridlock of partisan politics or cable news network rhetoric? How do we actually experience unity in Christ, which is directly connected to our mission, our evangelism, and the credibility of the gospel? I want to create a safe space for us to have uh, this critical conversation. And so I immediately thought of some friends of mine who have walked this journey, whose lived and lived experiences uh, reflect a deep commitment to uh, a multi-ethnic, Christ-honoring lifestyle, and who most of all are men who love Jesus Christ and the Word of God and His church. So today I'm really excited to be joined by our Farmington Hills campus pastor, Jacob Lay. To also be joined by my good friend, Chris Norman, who lives in Georgia, not far from where uh, the tragedy took place. And he is now an associate pastor at First Baptist Woodstock. I also want to say thanks to a good friend, Steve Cato, for joining me. Steve served for many years on InterVarsity staff at Wayne State University and now works for the city of Detroit. Uh, these are good brothers and they're going to help us to navigate this conversation today. Well, guys, thanks for joining me. Uh, obviously, this is a very important and critical conversation. And let's be honest, it's one that so many within the body of Christ um, and even beyond uh, struggle with. I think it was just a year ago that I read a uh, USA Today article that said 75% of Americans think that race relations are at their lowest point in a generation. And uh, it'd be one thing if that was just true for those outside of Christ. I think uh, what we all have to acknowledge is that even within the body, uh, we struggle uh, with this. So I want to um, start by just establishing that the goal for me, at least, in this conversation is uh, um, both um, um, repentance and, and reconciliation, and uh, most, uh, most importantly, that we would create a conversation, a safe place, to discuss hard things that point people to Christ so that our lives can more effectively reflect Him. Um, but you guys know, uh, and Jacob, I'll start with you, uh, the uh, Ahmad Arbery uh, incident, uh, this tragedy has sparked a national conversation. But yet, I, I know whenever a moment like this comes, there are always two uh, perspectives. One is the perspective of why do we need to even have this conversation? It's, it's one incident. It's sad, it's tragic, but blown out of proportion. The other is, no, we need to have this conversation, and, uh, and it's critical, and we can't have it enough. Uh, what would you say, uh, and I'll ask you to start with those who may feel like uh, we don't need to have the conversation about race, about disunity, and, uh, and about faith in Christ. Why is it so important for us to have this conversation? Yeah, that, uh, that's a great question, Chris. And, you know, as I, as I think about these things, I think a couple things first come to mind. One, 
I think we have to recognize the reality that this conversation is important because it, it isn't in isolation. I know sometimes people can feel that way, but, but it's not. There's, there's a whole history um, that, that plays into this moment for, for all of us, right? For, for every single one of us coming to this conversation. And so I don't think we can, we look in our lives at any moment and say, oh, well, this just happens in isolation. That, that's never the case. So I think it, you, to come at it from that perspective actually removes a lot of the history, not just in the recent years where we've seen incidents like this, but even, even in our past as a, as a nation and society. And so I, that's one thing I'd say. And the second thing is, I think, even just to appeal to uh, really the kind of empathy and unity that we're called to have as followers of Christ, that, you know, we are one people in him. And so when part of the body of Christ is hurting, our call is to step into those conversations and to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to kind of jump in um, and engage in, in those spaces and places. God never calls his people um, to just sit back on the sideline and say, well, that's your, that's your thing. That's your issue. That doesn't have to deal with me. That's not my thing. That, that's you. And so I think one, we have to recognize this incident isn't isolated. And two, I think we have to, to recognize that a significant part of both the body of Christ and our world is grieving and wrestling and asking questions. And our call, I think we see throughout scripture is to engage in that, not, yeah. not to run from it. Yeah, I think, Chris, as I listen to Jacob, I think about the fact that one of the things that's lost in language uh, today around church and around what it means to be in Christ is this word covenant, that we are a covenant people, and that means we're in covenant with God, but that also means we're in covenant with one another. So when I look at you guys, I look at you as part of my body, the same body. I look at you guys as brothers in Christ. And so that means when one is hurting, the other is hurting as well. But yet, I think one of the reasons, Chris, why this conversation is often avoided is because people feel inadequate, right? Like, I don't even know what to say, what to do, even if I am empathetic or, or sympathizing. What do you say to those who maybe avoid the conversation because they feel inadequate? Yeah, I think um, yeah, that's a that's a great point, Chris. Um, my encouragement to someone who says, and I don't really have the language, I don't have the vocabulary to engage in this well, or if I do, I feel like I could be, uh, be potentially stepping into a minefield. Uh, my encouragement to them would be to learn, uh, to learn what, what context is all of this occurring in. And I think there's all kinds of resources, whether that's uh, books, TV shows, but I think the best resource is human capital. <laughs> so uh, just listening to the stories of, of people that you may know um, who've experienced something like this in their own lives or who are a little bit closer connected um, to the problems that we face as a culture. Um, so I would, I would encourage them to engage in a learning process. And I think a big part of it, like I said earlier, um, is just listening. And as you listen, um, and as you learn, you can, you'll be able to empathize better because all of a sudden you can relate to the situation. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. Uh, I don't think that that would be an appropriate response either. Um, but I think being more familiar with the issues that people are facing uh, builds bridges for uh, empathy and relatability. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's serve the body of Christ by sharing our lived experience 
rooted and grounded under the authority of scripture. Uh, so let me just talk a little bit about how I experienced the Ahmad uh, Aubrey uh, situation and tragedy. As an African-American uh, man, I live with a constant awareness of that reality. Uh, it does not mean that that's the primary thing that defines me. Uh, I am in Christ, but yet uh, being a black man is something that uh, I, I live with, right? And uh, not just me, but my family as well. And so when news like uh, this comes out, and Jacob is right when he says there's a lived history here, there's a lot of background here, um, I immediately got a call from my mom. And uh, my mom calls me, and she is deeply emotional. Uh, she is uh, almost uh, with tears in her voice. And, and, and the reason why is because I had just been talking to my mom about getting back in shape. Guys, over this quarantine, I've gotten me a total gym, you know, the Chuck Norris total gym, and I've determined I'm going to get me a body better than Chuck Norris. And so I've been out jogging and running, and there's a park uh, close to my home, and, uh, and I live in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, and uh, there's a park close to my home, and uh, I run in that park with my boys. And my mom called me and said, please don't jog today can you please stop doing that and uh and it just was a mother's concern and she lives with that concern for her sons um this is just me sharing transparently uh part of the struggle of um of uh what it means to have a history as a people where oftentimes government has not been for you law enforcement agents have uh, not been for you uh you felt targeted uh, in, in certain communities. Uh, but I want to come to you, Steve, because you've lived uh, a, a, uh, an interesting uh, cross-cultural life as well. You are married uh, to uh, an awesome Jamaican wife. You're in a biracial uh, marriage. Uh, I think that's an important part of your narrative. You spent uh, years living in Detroit, a predominantly uh, black city. Um, and you just recently posted about um, your struggles in this whole conversation as well. Can you just share a little bit about your journey with race and how that plays into a moment like this for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, your, what you just shared really impacted me. I think I think part of what we're missing in the conversation is for people to just take a breath and realize like this is my neighbor like this is a real human um, last night I was thinking about I think we've lost the humanity to polarity and we're we're and behind screens and and that kind of stuff and that's part of why i started sharing my story last night as i was thinking about this call the movie that came to mind was a time to kill because his whole the whole build up the climax of that is him being like what if this was a little white girl um you know because we can't we don't seem to be able to have conversations across the aisle where we can really appreciate someone's humanity your mom your mother you know, still 
it's your age being worried because you're going to going out for a jog and what that means today in America. And that's it's part of why I wanted to share my story because I think there's a lot of people that just need to hear like the, the human side of things. For me, so I'd been in Detroit uh, for several years. I moved very specifically to be closer to an environment where I could make connections with people selling uh, drugs and those kind of things. That's just where I was at at the time. Um, there was a couple of incidents. One is I got jumped across the street from my house by uh, several young men. And three years later, and that had an impact on me for a while. I bounced back pretty quickly. They just just surround, you know, surrounded me, beat me, left me unconscious, and that was it. They didn't take anything. I had I don't carry money on me. I had money on me. They didn't take anything. Um, three years after that, I got shot. I was, it was ironic because we were in the process, my partner and I, my business partner and I, we were seeking out people who were, had, couldn't otherwise find employment, who had a difficult time because they had felonies, and that kind of background. I'm unloading tools with a friend of mine and two guys come around and pull out guns. I end up getting shot in the chest. It goes through my lung, in and out of my right lung, ends up right between my spine and my aorta. The, the, it's very small space there. And for me not to have died or have bled out is, well, you know, it's, it's basically a miracle. And uh, that had a serious impact on, on my psyche. Like I, I was out of the hospital in a week. I was almost completely rehabbed in a month. But that stuff really messed with my head and it really and it messed with my emotions. And I began to not experience life the same way. My normal became there was no normal. My, my going to pick up Little Caesars and some of the experience I've, I've had just with people. And some of it's been really inappropriate scenarios. And some of it's just really normal people doing normal things. And I'm freaking out. And so part of the reason why I shared that stuff is because as like there are there's a certain scenario of a black male that and I see in certain contexts and it's it's a profile it's not every black male but and it's not every context but I will be triggered and there's something that happens viscerally physiologically I can feel that stuff moving through my whole body and so the reason I started talking about it is because I wanted to bring humanity into the conversation I wanted to be to be able to open the, the com open the doors of conversation for people so we can start having, like, what are your actual thoughts? Because a lot of us have been programmed it, from the time we're little and the things we take in on the media, we think things, we respond to certain things emotionally and, and in those emotions, there's thoughts behind those. And a lot of times we're not processing all that kind of stuff. And mine is, mine is major, it's, it's post-traumatic stress disorder, but I think all of us, I think there's been an American trauma that has taken place and continues to take place and we try to keep going on with business as usual and it's just not going to work until we start digging yeah. and viewing each other as humans you know I, I appreciate you and um i remember the night you were shot um and i remember being in that hospital er uh, lobby uh with a group of brothers who uh, love you deeply and uh and i remember praying with those brothers and and uh, worshiping together in the lobby so much so that other folks that were waiting in the ER started singing songs to the Lord with us. And um, I remember seeing you uh, going into your room 
kissing your forehead, praying that God would bring you through. And um, I know that has to create dual emotions for you because on the one hand, your story is, man, I was jumped by black men. I was uh, shot by black men. Um, but the other side of the story is, man, I had black men praying for me and, you know, um, fighting for me and, you know, uh, in my corner. And I know for me, that's true as well. You know, um, I have had both sides of the coin in my relationship with folks from different races and ethnicities. Um, you know, just, and I know this conversation is bigger than black and white. So I just want to say to our Asian brothers and sisters, our Hispanic, Latino brothers and sisters, we see you, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters, we see you as well. Um, I just want to just mention, again, my context is I have had so many awesome experiences uh, with my white brothers and sisters. And I got to remind myself of that when the negative ones uh, come as well. And I think that's so important when you talk about humanizing uh, this, this conversation. Uh, Jacob, uh, you have an African-American daughter uh, that you and your wife, Felicia, have adopted. Um, she came to you guys <clears throat> older, uh, already with a, a grandson. Talk about your sweet grandson and talk about uh, the thoughts that went through your mind when you heard about the news out of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, the, I don't think it was hard in the moment to kind of personalize some of the response and think through the reality that, you know, this is, this is my grandson's age in 15 years or so, right? And that jogging through a neighborhood would be a very hopefully normal activity for him as he grows and, and builds. And so it was, for me, it wasn't hard to to in some sense feel, not, not ever in the same way as, as maybe somebody who um, has sons or daughters or, or that, because I recognize even, even the, my own cultural perspective that I bring to this just being a white American. So I don't want to put it in the same category. But yeah, I mean, the initial thought, both Alicia and I acknowledged kind of that evening was, man, this, this could very well be our grandson. And the reality of that just settling in, uh, I think stirs in, in empathy in me, um, but I, but it got me thinking, and even we, my wife and I were having the conversation that I think sometimes in this, we feel like the only empathy we can have is when we, we personalize some of this. But uh, going back, I think to the point that, that Chris made earlier, um, you know, I think that there's just a humanity here that we have to recognize. And even Steve brought that too, like, we should all be able at some sense to, to take this and look at it and see the, the humanity of what happened and to seek to then connect and empathize with, with the tragedy of it out of our community. So I felt that certainly personally, just having you know, my daughter, my grandson, and that being a significant part of our family. But I want to encourage people, if they're listening, that, that doesn't just have to come because you have that in your family or your life. I think all of us can look at a situation like this and connect with the, the humanity of it and the tragedy of, of that and really still seek to pursue, pursue empathy. Um, and I just think that's, that's key in how we navigate these dialogues, right? And, and if we're not willing to take the first step to, to, to connect with the, the moment and the humanity, I think, and that's one of the things I see in the conversation and, and I've learned to be cautious about, if we move too quick to, the, the politics of it, the, the 
philosophy of it, the, the, the larger kind of discussions that we do need to have around race and racial tensions and issues, but we don't stop first and say, man, this is a, this is a family, this is someone's son, this is a serious situation, and we don't, we don't pause to really let our hearts settle on that. And I think we rush into conversations too brash. And so um, I think that's just, yeah, part of, part of where I've been, but I think it's important for all of us. Yeah, Jacob, I, you know, I appreciate you bringing up the politics of it because I think that one of the things that makes this so tough is that typically after these uh, national, at least national uh, conversations, when an incident sparks it, there's the initial, what I would call, sweet moment of unity where all of us internally are wired to know, hey, um, something is uh, wrong here, right? But it's not too long after that when, you know, politics takes over and uh, things get highly uh, politicized. And then, you know, the 24-hour cable news cycles uh, kick in. And next thing you know, people feel like, man, I can't sympathize or empathize until I have litigated the whole thing, right? And uh, a good friend of mine did a video recently where she described it as this. She says, it's kind of like riding by, you're in a car with friends, and you ride by someone who has a flat tire on the side of the road, right? Now, you got two options. You can debate how that flat tire happened. You can say, well, maybe it was a nail, or maybe it was wear and tear, right? Or you can just simply acknowledge there's a flat tire here, and it needs to be changed, right? Uh, there is a place and time to debate how the flat tire happened. But in that moment, the most important thing is to fix the flat tire, right? And I think that we could all acknowledge that there is uh, deep discord, discord and disunity, uh, not just in the world, not just in the broader culture, but in the body of Christ uh, that is very real. And uh, we can litigate why and who's to blame and all those things, but we got to acknowledge it and we have to apply God's word to it. So Chris, I, I want to come to you from that perspective, the application of God's word. I know I've been thinking about a lot of passages of scripture. I think about Ephesians 2, and the fact that Christ on that cross tore down the wall of hostility that exists between the ethnic groups. Uh, I think about Acts chapter six and how uh, this early church uh, had ethnic tensions and power disparities and how they fought for unity together and emerged from that when the church could have easily been uh, divided. Uh, where is your mind taking you, Chris, when it comes to God's word? Yeah. Um... You know, before before I answer that question, I just wanted to um, stand in agreement with you. I think that you see this this cycle of that initial a moment of mutual grieving followed by politicization, and for me, that's been uh, my number one uh, grief and at times frustration when it comes to the body of Christ, uh, because I think our biblical worldview uh, way too often isn't informing our political worldview our biblical worldview isn't always informing how we respond to national situations like this. So um, my, my constant focus has been, how does the word of God, how does my identity um, as a believer in Christ who happens to be African-American, how does that inform um, my responsibilities to my other brothers and sisters um, and to my neighbors who may not believe the same way that I do? Um, so a lot of things come to mind. I think scripture has so much to say about God's heart for the nations and his desire for unity amongst his people. 
Uh, but for this situation in particular, I've challenged the church that I'm at um, to uh, read and apply Micah 6.8, uh, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Um, and from that, I, I think uh, some key applications can be made. The first one being, uh, what does it look like to do justice in this moment? Um, so my suggestion has been calling the DA's office and leaving a voicemail and praying for them um, that they would do what's right, that they would go about the judicial process in a way that honors the Lord um, and is true to the situation. Um, a small act, but nevertheless, taking God seriously when he says to do justice. Our God is a God of justice. Both righteousness and justice are at the foundation of his throne. Uh, then secondly, to love mercy. Now, what would it look like to uh, try to get in contact with the family of Ahmad Arbery? Uh, what would it look like to pray for his mom, to pray for everybody who's been affected? What would it look like to uh, come alongside financially, if that's even possible, um, to take care of uh, legal procedures that have to be paid for? Um, but just walking in what it looks like to love mercy and kindness as the people of God. And then lastly, to walk humbly with our God. Um, I cannot admonish believers enough to not allow um, CNN and Fox News to inform what we do. Um, our first priority is to think about this through the lens of a biblical worldview, and then how, how would God require us to behave, even in the midst of disagreement. Um, so remembering our identity as God's people first, and then everything else um, is determined from, from that. So when I think about, you know, what can we do biblically from a biblical perspective, the Lord really brought Micah 6, 8 to my mind to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Yeah, I love the practical application piece, too. I was that family. You would know that just a couple of weeks ago we did a message on justice and uh, we talked about the justice of God. Is God just? And the answer is yes. And we know it uh, not only from his attributes, but from his expectations for his people. He commands that his people would be just. And uh, I know after uh, my family and I watched that message, uh, we had a great conversation with uh, within our family of what does this look like and how do we apply it right now? So I think that's a great conversation. One of the other verses that I thought of, uh, Steve, is uh, Romans twelve fifteen that tells us that we are to uh, mourn with those who mourn or, or weep with those who weep. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, but all of that assumes relationships. So Steve, uh, talk about the importance, uh, getting real practical, the importance of um, cross-cultural, multi-ethnic relationships. Yeah, I think for me, that was that was huge. And, and coming into moving to Detroit, I already had a lot of relational capital. Uh, with Black Americans and really healthy relationships, and in then being in Detroit for a significant amount of year, and as you you mentioned, the particular people that reached out to me, I spiraled after that into some really dark places and really struggled with depression as I was battling with PTSD. And Black Americans, men especially, consistently reached out. Even when I wasn't returning phone calls or text messages, they would knock on the door, they would come by the house, those kind of things. That, you know, all of our, we have this wrestling with us, even if it's subconsciously about the messages, the things that we believe. And so in that case, I needed, because I was also filling myself, there's a ton of negative stuff on the internet. Oftentimes we will fill ourselves with stuff that just 
continues to build on this thing that we already believe. So I was watching, I was consuming videos of violence that involved black Americans to continue this, this just dark psychosis that was in my mind. From a relational standpoint, the verse that stands out is in Genesis when God says, you know, why are you angry? And I think that, I think that's a really important question in this. Why are you responding the way that you're responding? Angry, you know, anger and apathy are usually two emotions that mask what's really going on. So when I think about entering into a relationship with a black American, Mexican American, whatever, or even when I think about the conversations around that, what is being said? You know, Chris said earlier about the going into those relationships, maybe not feeling, maybe not feeling equipped enough. It's okay. It's okay if you don't feel equipped enough. It's okay if you're not equipped enough. It's okay if you're ignorant. Like there is a, we judge ourselves so hard, harshly and the world speaks so harshly to people who aren't quite there yet. We're not born there yet. There's either trained or untrained. So if we can stop, if we can remove the judgment and just be okay with yourself entering in, saying some things that are inappropriate, like everybody does because you're human. I think if we can to remove some of the judgments of ourselves and start to just tune out some of the other people. For me, I needed people to be able to have real conversations with. I had great friends at Michigan State. We would just sit there and, and chop it up. And they'd ask me, why do white people wear sand sandals in the wintertime? Why do you guys do this? Like, how come, you know what I'm saying? What, like, we're, we're in our triple fat goose and you guys are out sunbathing. Like, I don't understand, you know, but, and I'm able to answer, ask them, you know, similar questions, you know, and and those are those are great things. So there's people out there that are willing to engage. So if the people that you're engaging with aren't people that are going to just allow you to breathe, just you know, part of that might mean yes, continue to do research and reading so you can have more intelligent conversations. But find people who are just going to walk with you and appreciate you for you. That's what is is it really? Yeah. I know that was a long answer. No, that was great, and I think that to me. Uh, one of the goals uh, for my life in relationships is to create a safe place for tough conversations. I don't even see how you accomplish discipleship without doing that. Uh, you have to be able to create a safe place where people can come to you to talk about their struggles in a whole myriad of issues from relationships to ethnicity to sexuality. I mean, if we're going to really be able to apply God's word to the totality of our lives, we have to be able to create those safe relational uh, bridges, if you will, that's strong enough to carry the weight of the gospel. Um, Jacob, I would love uh, for you, if you could, let's just get uh, real practical. You know, I'm raising a biracial son, uh, my sweet son, Cameron, who uh, came to us through adoption. And I think a lot about how am I going to talk to him uh, as a parent about um, race and ethnicity and faith in Christ. Uh, what advice would you give uh, to folks about leaning into these conversations more, uh, maybe even as a parent, about having these conversations with your children? Because I think our kids will take on the ethos of our home. And if we're going to have, um, if we're going to address this hatred in the heart, it has to start at home as well. And the ignorance and the uh, confusion and suspicions about one another has to be addressed in the home as well. So uh, give some advice to uh, those that you shepherd. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the first piece of advice I would give anyone entering the conversation, especially as a parent, is 
even just kind of what you were alluding to, like we have to do our own work with where we're at before we're ready to really help shepherd even our kids. And so that was one of the things I think that I realized when we, when our daughter came into our house, um, was it, it surfaced for me a lot of my own history, um, subconscious thoughts that, that I had had or things like, you know, stereotypes that are played into just culturally that you kind of receive and you don't even quite realize the way that you internalize them all the time. So when my daughter came in, you know, it forced me and I, I think a privilege of her coming was it forced me to say, okay, where am I at with this? Have I done the work necessary within my own heart in terms of how I think about uh, race, how I think about other people, how I relate to other races, to their, their culture, their history, right? My, my daughter came with an entire different experience culturally of life in America than I had or even my wife had. And so it forced me in that moment to say like, okay, I've got to start to, to approach this from her perspective. And that opened a door for me um, for a lot of transformation in my own heart first. And then once that started to happen, I think then the, the, the step was I could begin to shepherd my kids. I could be able to look at my family and, and identify why, why do we respond to certain wage situations? How do we need to be aware of other people from other different cultural backgrounds that are around us? How do we embrace that? And so that's where I would say to any parent, but really to anyone, I think the starting point is you've got to look at your own self and say, where are my biases? Where are my potential prejudices? What am I bringing to this conversation and issue? Can I do my own my own work first. And then as you do that, I think you'll naturally begin to move into a place where you're going to increase, I think as you do that, empathy, humility, um, the right sort of attitudes and approaches. You won't be perfect, right? We want to clarify that. There's so many of us are still growing in this conversation in so many ways. And that's where I even just appreciate hearing you guys as, as we wrestle through this. But I think at the end of the day, as we grow, then we'll be able to turn to those beneath us and say, hey, let me help you. But if you're not growing, if you're not engaging the conversation, if you're not challenging yourself, I don't, it's going to be hard, I think, to then shepherd and lead a child or a family, family well. So that, I think that would just be one piece of advice. Start where you're at, yeah. focus on your own growth, and then from there, you'll learn how to, how to shepherd those around you. You know, guys, I want to hear from you about resources that you would recommend for people who want to go deeper in this conversation. But before I do that, let me just say, um, part of what frames this conversation for me is that I'm passionately uh, pro-life. Uh, I've been unashamed about that. But I believe that if you're going to be pro-life without exceptions, that means from the womb to the tomb. And uh, we can't just love children while they're babies. Uh, we have to love adults, image bearers of, uh, of God. And so I pray that uh, for everyone who's tuning into this conversation, that they would uh, sense that this is important. Uh, that our uh, goal in this is to help us to live more faithfully as his witnesses in a world that desperately needs us to get this right within the body of Christ, uh, because our unity is a direct reflection of his lordship, and it is tied to our evangelism. I think our disunity undermines the credibility of the gospel, and that's really critical. I think from a practical perspective as well, uh, Chris, you brought this up. Um, whenever situations arise, you're not going to be able to stomp out all evil in your community. You're not going to be able to fix all brokenness, but there should be certain things that grip your heart. Maybe this incident didn't, 
and that's fine. This is about more than just one incident. Uh, but you got to find what evil has God called you to eradicate? What brokenness has God called you by his grace to address and to try to fix? And then ask those two questions. What does it mean to be just in this moment? What does justice look like? How can I contribute to justice? And then secondly, mercy. What does mercy look like uh, in kindness? And how do I contribute uh, to that? Uh, but let me just go to Steve real quickly. Um, resources that you would recommend? Is there a resource that you would recommend to people who say, I want to go deeper into multi-ethnic conversations uh, that, that may help? Yeah, mine is going to be a little off the wall, I think. Uh, I do want to just say real quickly what Jacob was describing was taking the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of your own. I, I think the more self-awareness we have, the better off everyone will be. Um, so that kind of gets into, um, so one, I think everybody should rewatch or watch for the first time, The Time to Kill. And I think, because I think that really, that, you, that the yeah, or read the book. Uh, so it's a John Grisham book and amazing, does an amazing job of like highlighting a community who has lost sight of each other's humanity, which is, I think, a, a key problem here. The off the wall one that I would recommend is the book called Mindset. And this is a, a book by a psychologist that gets into the two primary mindsets that people have. One is a growth mindset and one is a fixed mindset. Now, I think this is one of the primary problems in the U.S. is that a lot of us, it's like we feel attacked by conversations that question our capabilities or the, the way that we think and those kind of things. Because how we view ourselves, like that's all of who we are. We value ourselves at what we know currently, what we, what we understand currently, whereas a growth mindset, it's like, no, you were born, we all come out the same way. You have an opportunity to grow or not. That doesn't change how valuable you are. We cannot love other people well until we learn to stop judging ourselves, to love ourselves first. That's what, what Christ said. It's like, love your neighbor as you love yourself. A lot of people, especially... Um, like it's crazy how many people in the church just walk around they have almost no self-esteem they're constantly beating themselves up with negative self-talk i think once we really do some inner work and are okay with people you know we're okay with ourselves then when somebody starts to question our beliefs and stuff our immediate response is not to attack them because it's not necessarily going to just now i feel bad about myself and i feel shameful like, so I'm going to attack you without even understanding what's going on. I really think we need to dive deeply into ourselves and really be comfortable with ourselves so that we can come to this table and have an adult, mature conversation and say, okay, now look, you might think this, that, or the other of me. It doesn't really matter. What can I do? How do I grow? Yeah. Those kind of things. We have to be comfortable with ourselves. So I would say the book Mindset by Carol Dweck and A Time to Kill, the book or the book. Yeah, I love what you just said. And I, you know, last year when uh, our son died, uh, we started grief counseling and I was probably three sessions in before my counselor asked a question that rocked my world and has refined my theology. He simply asked me, Chris, is God pleased with you? And man, it, it shook me, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I could have easily, you know, tried to rationalize it you know, and say, well, I know I'm justified in Christ. I know I'm forgiven. I know he loves me, evidenced by Calvary. Uh, but honestly, I had not thought deeply about the pleasure of God. Is God pleased with me? And uh, for the last 
six months or so, I've worked on that aspect of my theology, uh, just delving deep into God's word over his pleasure with his children. And, um, and uh, I'm grateful to be able to say today something that I don't know if I could have said uh, maybe even six months ago, and that is that um, I'm confident that God is pleased with me as his son. And, uh, and, you know, one of the things my counselor did for us and for me in particular is to ask the question, now, how has that lack in your theology affected the way you parent, the way you relate to other people? If, if you're not convinced God is pleased with you, then how does that cause you to relate to others? So I appreciate the reminder of that we have to uh, do self-work and apply God's word to our lives or it's going to affect the way we relate to others. Uh, Jacob, a uh, resource that you would recommend. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not going to uh, dodge your question, but actually uh, a, a couple years ago as I was working through things, even within our own family, um, I had a, a close uh, black friend and kind of mentor in some ways. And I asked him this question. I said, hey, I, I want to learn in this. Like, help me. How can I, how can I grow? And I'll never, I'll never forget. He basically said, your greatest resource in growing in this is your African-American neighbor. It, it's actually the, the, the relationship that you pursue with someone who isn't like you. And what I found in my own journey, and, and there's a number of, of books and resources that, that I've read. I, I think, you know, I have a great little book that I've loved of the speeches of, of Dr. King, um, a number of books by John Perkins. There, there's been resources that I think have helped in the journey, but no resource, honestly, for my own journey, and I, I'm still learning, but no resource is better than friendship with someone of a different uh, ethnic cultural background. Even in this situation that, that we're discussing today, like I, I called uh, my friend James, who's one of my deep brothers, who's black, and, and I called him and just said, hey man, how are, how are you feeling? Like, how are you processing this? Like, help me understand where you're feeling. And, and he gave me insight that I never could have picked up in a book. So I'm not dismissing the value of resources. Please, please, I don't want to, I'm not trying to dodge your question, Chris. But I think if I had any encouragement, I would, I would just remind our audience, the greatest resource that you have is your neighbor. And it's built relationship and friendship with them from a place of humility to learn from them and understand their story and where they're coming. That will, that will allow you to change more than anything else that you that you just read in a book not that books aren't important you know i love books but <laughs> well you know what and, and, and steve talks about this growth mindset um we should ever seek to ever expand uh our relationships um and to seek um diversity uh in in relationships i just think that we talk about corporate diversity or diversity within the church i think all of those things are shadow boxing if we don't experience it in our relationships. And again, that's more than just black and white. I just wanna to say to, again, our Latino brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, uh, Middle Eastern brothers and sisters, uh, this is a broader conversation we know than just black and white. And it, uh, the, the, the uh, relationship uh, equity is so important that we build uh, cross-culturally. I will just highlight, since you brought him up, uh, Dr. John C. Perkins, uh, his book, One Blood, is a great book. He calls it his uh, last book, treatise on this topic. Uh, but you talk about just a rock-solid man of God. Uh, that's, that's it. And his book, One Blood, is phenomenal. All right, Chris Norman, resource. 
Yes, resources. Um, I want to double down on what Jake just mentioned. Uh, people are our best resource. People in proximity. Um, one of the things that have helped that has helped me uh, process through a racial or ethnic reconciliation um, was being in a cross-cultural context. You know, I grew up in Detroit, which is at the time, especially in the '90s, as far as I mean, being predominantly African American is concerned, then going to Michigan State, then serving in the metro area. I mean, it's been a it's been a blessing to me to have people in my network of relationships that were not the same as me from a cultural standpoint. Um, but one thing that I, I do want to add to the list, going off of what I mentioned earlier, as far as worldview is concerned, uh, J. Daniel Hayes has a really good book called From uh, Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race. Um, we, as a people of God, have to be able to think about any issue um, that is a hot button issue in our culture, um, but especially this one. We have to be able to think about it from the perspective of a biblical worldview. Um, that's been a helpful resource to me amongst many others. Uh, but going back to the question of the truth, God's word, our identity in Christ, um, how can we think about race and ethnicity from the perspective of, of the Bible? Um, so I recommend that for a people to use. It's been a huge help to me. Yeah, we, we, we got to be people of the scriptures, people of the book. That is the greatest resource. Let me just say one word of caution. And then, Jacob, I know we could go on and on and on, but I'm going to have you close this in prayer. But I just want to say one word of caution to uh, my brothers and sisters who are ethnic minorities, who feel unheard, frustrated, angry, maybe even mistreated and oppressed, that one of the temptations that we have to avoid in this moment is uh, joining social groups or movements that are not rooted and grounded in Christ, uh, that uh, will use uh, attributes maybe that's talked about or virtues that's talked about in scripture, like justice or reconciliation, but will deposit uh, different definitions than what the word of God would deposit for those, uh, those terms and virtues. Uh, we have to be in Christ. That's the top line identity uh, factor for us, that we are in Christ. That means that yes, by getting into covenant in Christ, that means that we rejoice together and we hurt together, but we stay together. And so this is why we need to have these conversations, because if we don't, people who are hurting will look to movements outside of Christ to try to affiliate uh, with or to express their disappointments or frustrations with. And so I'm just going to encourage you, stay in Christ. And if for some reason you find yourself into, in some other social movement, be in there as a gospel witness, be in that movement as a witness for Christ, calling men and women to the only one who will give us ultimate justice. And that, that justice uh, was, uh, was fulfilled in the cross of Christ and will be actualized at his return, uh, which we all long for as we traverse through a broken world. Um, I'm going to ask Jacob if he could pray for us. Yeah, it's my privilege. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you, even as we uh, have been reminded, we thank you that there is an end and a day coming when your kingdom will reign in perfect justice and righteousness across uh, the earth. And we long and hunger for that day. Um, we thank you that Christ has done the work on the cross um, and in his resurrection uh, that, that is necessary for your kingdom to come, for sin to be atoned for, and for us to be with you forever. So praise you, Jesus, for that. Uh, but even as we think about this moment, uh, God, 
my heart just goes back to that call we heard earlier uh, from Micah 6, and I just want to pray that over us. I just pray first, God, for um, for us as your church and as your people, that you would help us to do justice, um, that we genuinely would be a people of justice that would work and labor to bring justice into the world. And even in these moments, God, let us be a people that champion justice every chance that we can that speak on the behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized um, help us to uh, not sit in apathy uh, lord as a people but to really lean into justice um, help us god to to love mercy i think of even right now in this moment how much we need your mercy so many um, just in response to this, are grieving and hurting. I know there's fear and there's anxiety. Lord, you promise in the Psalms that you're near to the brokenhearted. And so we just pray your nearness and your mercy over those that are grieving right now. Um, we pray for uh, Ahmad's mother and his family um, that are grieving. We ask for your mercy to be on them and for your grace in this time. And, and for all of those just grieving, God, playing you draw close and may your mercy rain. And finally, God, I ask in all of this that you would help us as your people to walk humbly and just that humility would be what marks us. Uh, all of us come to this conversation, God, and it's so easy for our flesh and our pride to lead what we say. But I pray instead that your people would be marked by humility, that are willing to submit first to you, to your word, um, to what you teach us, and then also to submit to one another, even as Paul calls us later in Ephesians, that we would be a people that submit to one another and honor one another. So help us to walk in humility with you and with one another through this season. Thanks just for this time and this conversation. I pray, Lord, that it would spark fruitful, um, honest, and genuine conversations among brothers and sisters um, everywhere. And so we just ask that in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers, thanks for joining me. Thanks for being transparent, honest. Uh, I love you guys. Uh, appreciate you all. And uh, I'm grateful for you. Thanks for uh, being with me. Well, Woodside family and friends, I hope that that conversation was edifying. I hope it was a blessing to you. There's so much more ground that we could have covered that I know uh, sparks questions within your own heart and mind. But as we end this conversation, I pray that we are just entering into the relationships and the dialogues that uh, need to happen for us to actually be the people of God that he's called us to be. Uh, our hearts are heavy as we think about the pain that so many are experiencing. And maybe you today, you're experiencing grief over uh, this whole thing, not just uh, the death of Ahmad Arbery, but the history that surrounds it and the pain of not being able to have these conversations. My prayer is that Woodside would be a safe place, that it would be a place that people would feel that they can come and experience family and also have critical conversations that point them to Christ. This is the exact reason why we do these weekly editions of The Link, so that we can connect the word to the world, to help us to know how we can live out our faith in Christ through a culture that so desperately needs our witness. So thanks for tuning in. Make sure you stay connected, and let's be people who seek justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our God. God bless you, and I'll see you on the next edition of The Link.